Welcome to the Focus Today podcast with Perry Atkinson. Focus today. I'm your host, Perry Atkinson, and I've been looking forward to our new guest today. Delighted to have with us uh, Dr. Dan McMillan. He holds a PhD in history from Columbia University, a law degree from uh, Fordham University of Law, and he has published scholarly works both in history and law, and has worked as a uh, prosecuting attorney and as a history professor. And How Could This Happen is the title of his new book, and is the result of nearly four decades of engagement with German history and the Holocaust. So we look forward to talking to him today. Dr. McMillan, good to see you. Thank you. Where are you? Where are we Skyping you in from? I'm in New York City, Perry, and thank you so much for having me. You bet. What, a, what an opportunity. Well, why did you take this on? This is a long project. What was behind all this? You know, I, I read my first book on the Holocaust when I was 12 years old. Uh, it would have been 50 years ago this year, like January 1973, uh, by The Murderers Among Us by Simon Wiesenthal, who went on after the war to dedicate his life to tracking down leading perpetrators and bringing them to justice. And it just knocked me flat. Uh, and I guess, so I've been interested in the topic for a very long time. I also really like to study foreign languages. When I got to high school, I had the opportunity for a second language. I was already studying Spanish, and I chose German partly because of my interest in the Holocaust and developed a lifelong connection to Germany and uh, the language and culture. And when I decided to become an academic historian, I chose German history in part out of a desire to understand how this could have been possible in well, it was in many ways our most advanced society. Um, hmm. You know, um, I think we all admit it's more complicated than we think. And I think your writings certainly reveal that um, more factors involved than just one, correct? That's right. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's about the purpose of my book. My book is really the only comprehensive essay on the causes of the Holocaust, and you need it as an overview to put about a dozen pieces of the puzzle together. And yet, in another sense, you can also state the most important cause of the Holocaust, I think, very simply, although it took me another decade after I published the book in 2014 to really sort this out. I think it happened, the most important thing you need to know about why the Holocaust happened is that the people who did this saw absolutely no reason to not do it, because the ruling class of this advanced society decided and proudly affirmed that an individual human life has no intrinsic value whatsoever. And if we were to ask them why you were doing this, and for that matter, why did they murder 3.3 3 million Soviet POWs, uh, about 3 million other victims who were not Jewish, who were Gentiles, they most likely would have shrugged their shoulders and, shoulders and said to us, why not? They're just, they're just people. And that is really the central, I think for me, the central truth of the Holocaust. And it's so horrifying that it, it, it took me 50 years to, to arrive at that insight, to be able to look at it squarely. And I think even in most public discussion about the Holocaust, that that central fact gets lost. And it's easy to get lost because you can get bogged down in, in all the details of the, the complex historical narrative. 
that led to Hitler taking power and then his decision to do this and, and all these other factors. But I, I like increasingly to, to direct focus to that one central fact, just the complete moral nihilism that took hold among the ruling class of our most advanced society in that, in that one place in time and, and one decade. Wow, you got my brain on tilt. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I just laid so I just <laughs> to process all of a second. No, I, I think we're all trying to wrap our head around this, uh, Dr. McMillan, because I think what we're seeing today is the potential of this happening again. And we're all going, no, 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 no. And yet there seems to be a yes, yes, yes to it. And we kind of go, how did we lose as human beings the value of human life? Well, you know, there, Perry, I, I actually kind of want to push back against pessimism for all the horror, uh, the suffering and the cruelty in the world today and what's in what's in the day's headlines. Uh, actually, I think that actually in, in reaction to World War II and the Holocaust was really when we first articulated a universal notion of human rights. Uh, in, in really legal terms, as opposed to religi religiously grounded notions of universal human dignity, which have existed in the world's religious traditions for a much longer time. But um, I would say that in the 80 years since World War II, despite the, the many setbacks, I think in our country and countries like us, that is the world's sort of capitalist democracies, I think we value life a lot more highly than we did 80 years ago. For all the sort of frightening scenarios in the world today and all the cruelty, I, I personally don't see another genocide as—I um, almost see it as impossible in a country like ours or Germany or, you know, Australia, Canada, Japan. So I do—I uh, don't want to be giving sort of a feel-good interview about the Holocaust, but on the other hand, I think it's important to recognize— the progress that we have made as a civilization and in this country as a people, so that we have faith in our ability to make further progress and to to strive for moral perfection, because I think that is something we need to strive for. And I think that we've made a lot of progress across the centuries. I don't disagree with Adam for a moment. I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm just trying to figure out in my mind that we can still become dull uh, to this kind of activity. Let me ask you this, Dr. McMillan, was World War I a preconditioning of the mind and the heart of people for a Holocaust? In other words, there was a lot of killing and that's part of war. We can do it again. That, that you could not have hit the nail more squarely on the head, Perry. I'm so glad you asked me that question. It is something that I think every historian of the Holocaust, indeed of 20th century Europe, will agree upon. You know, 10 million young men slaughtered, and particularly in the Western Front, in fighting where almost no ground was ever gained, and really what became a war of attrition where the deaths of these men was an end in itself, that we're going to win by having more of your young men die. You're exhausting your supply of young men before we exhaust ours. And absolutely, it, it just completely lowered the bar for violence and made the, the killing of millions a an unremarkable fact of political life. It also produced a cohort of genocidal killers. Uh, all too many of the, the men who carried out and planned the Holocaust were veterans or young men who'd grown up, maybe not quite old enough for military service, but caught up in the patriotic enthusiasm 
Hitler was, himself was a veteran of four years at the Western Front. Rudolf Huss, the commandant at Auschwitz, likewise a veteran. Uh, so you're absolutely right. The, the cheapening of human life in the First World War is maybe the most important factor that led to the complete devaluation of human life that I referred to earlier in our conversation. Um, let us not forget also back on World War II, the Holocaust. We didn't have the media coverage that we have today where more people are seeing the atrocities. So they were happening sure. and yet we saw the impact of it, but we didn't see the details of it until later. Uh, right. Which is, I, I can't help but think that's a factor, right or wrong. Well, it, it is also true as far, with respect to the Holocaust, although a lot of information did escape Germany uh, during World War II about the extermination of the Jews, nonetheless, hardly anyone in the West processed it, understood it, uh, really felt that they knew about it and believed it because it was unprecedented. It was something that defied belief at that point. It was unprecedented, and people just could not—they couldn't really, even if even when confronted with solid evidence, could not assimilate it and accept it. So how did a single group of people get singled out? How did anti-Semitism rise to the point where it was, I guess, propagandized but accepted? Well, you know, anti-Semitism—I think the, the specific anti-Semitism that led— to the Holocaust was a belief that there was a worldwide conspiracy of Jews to divide and conquer the societies in which they lived using Marxism. The idea was that the Jews set the social classes against each other through the Marxist um, doctrine of class struggle. Jews were blamed first for the rise of socialist parties until, uh, you know, in the years before World War I, and then for the rise uh, for the, the socialist, the communist revolution in Russia in 1917, and the communist parties thereafter. And the leaders of Nazi Germany and the elite of Nazi Germany uh, believed, at least to some degree, that by exterminating the Jews, they would permanently banish the threat of communist revolution. Why the Jews were the target for this? One was because they were uh, a diaspora nation, that is, that there were Jewish communities all over the world, and this kind of lent plausibility to the accusation that they um, were, uh, you know, that they were loyal to each other rather than to the countries in which they lived, and also then the extraordinary degree of Jewish success uh, in so many areas of endeavor helped nurture, lent a service plausibility to the fantasy of quote unquote Jewish power or Jewish influence. And I think those are probably the Finally, the fact that Karl Marx himself was of Jewish parentage lent a certain surface plausibility to this accusation as well. Did you see a religious component to this? Um, not, not in the in specifically in in, in the genocidal uh, anti-Semitism of the Nazis, because the Nazis actually were very hostile to Christianity and hoped long term uh, to replace it with Nazism as, as effectively the religion of the German people. But on the other hand, there was a centuries long, uh, history of the demonization of Jews in Christian theology. Um, a belief, you see this already in the writings of Martin Luther, that the Jews were actually the spawn of Satan. Um, and you can see the, 
the secular 20th century theories of this evil worldwide Jewish conspiracy is kind of the secular updating of this long history. So you have essentially a Christian conspiracy theory of the Jews as the embodiment of evil, as the instrument of Satan. And then as these European societies become more secular, that pattern then becomes transferred onto a political fantasy yes. of Jews instrument of evil. Some theologians would tie that back to uh Jews being a Jesus killer. In other words, even though Jesus was a Jew, the Jews killed him, therefore they should be exterminated or done away with. And, and in fact, the, you know, the, the Catholic Church did not formally renounce the accusation against the Jewish people that they were the killers of Christ until the Vatican Council in 1965. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it seems it, it's, it's hard to get your mind around the idea right. that Jews in the 20th century are guilty for the crucifixion 19 centuries earlier. Uh, and that, you know, probably in some parts of Europe that made it easier for the local population to look the other way when, uh, for example, in Poland, when, when Jews were murdered in death camps in Poland. But on the other hand, Religious anti-Semitism was itself not, I would say, a driving force behind, behind the, the extermination of the Jews. The, the anti-Semitism of the murderers of the Nazi party, and especially of its, of its elite in the SS, was an explicitly secular anti-Semitism that also derived uh, a lot of its fury from the belief that the differences between Jews and other ethnic groups were genetic and inborn. The belief that is to say, uh, the adoption of social Darwinist racism, of biological racism, and that in itself involves a kind of renunciation of religious belief. There's two parts to this, Dr. McMillan, that I can't get my brain around, and maybe you can help me. And I, we, this is probably a huge discussion. We'll try to unpack it a little bit. And that yes. is the propagandizing of a lie and the apathy of the people. Yes. Uh, and so I, let's, let's deal with the propagandizing of a lie. How did that come about? Well, the, you know, it, it, it comes about because once Hitler takes power in 1933, within very short order, all of the media in Germany are brought under central government control, although this government control is to some degree, well, not effectively hidden, but like all the existing newspapers and film studios exist as they are, but they take all their instructions directly from Josef Goebbels in Berlin. You have the unfortunate sort of historical accident that I think one of the sort of greatest geniuses of propaganda, one, has to, one cannot call him anything less, Josef Goebbels, is, is central, is one of Hitler's right-hand men, and uh, is enormously creative in producing all kinds of propaganda. Uh, to strengthen the Nazi regime. And so uh, you have a drumbeat of anti-Semitic propaganda that begins uh, already from, with Hitler taking power in January of 1933. Um, and then it just, it continues all the way uh, through World War II. Mm. Uh, let me take a break. Got a few more uh questions to ask you. I'm so delighted to have with us uh, today uh, Dr. Dan McMillan. He, uh, he uh, wrote a book called How Could This Happen? You may want to check it out at the bookstores. And uh, he is a uh, professor of history 
Um, and also, he's an attorney. Quite a combination. We'll be right back. We'll be back to this week's interview in just a few seconds. In the meantime, we want to let you know that you can watch this interview, plus many more exclusive interviews that happen this week on the Dove's Daily TV and radio show by visiting our website, thedove.us. And while you're there, sign up for our free daily devotional, The Word for You Today. Three months of daily readings that will connect you with God's Word. Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back, and uh, an honor to have with us today, uh, Dr. Dan McMillan. He's a, he's a, holds a PhD in history from Columbia University. He's also a, an attorney. He's a published uh, has published scholarly work both in history and law, and he has a book out called "How Could This Happen?" And there's a picture of the cover of the book on the screen for those of you watching on the Dub TV network. If you're listening on the radio, check it out. "How Could This Happen?" by Dan McMillan. Um, Dr. McMillan, I was trying to figure out during the break how I was going to ask you this question. <laughs> There's so many things here. We, we touched briefly on the propaganda. Uh, I asked the question about the apathy, but there's other some contributing factors. Maybe you can help me get my brain around. You have apathy. You have some kind of psychological control. You have the cultural factors. All this working together to influence thousands of Germans to actively participate in a genocide. I, how'd that happen? What was well, it? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're talking, actually, when you talk about thousands, I think you would say there's probably about, we usually speak of about 200,000 perpetrators in the German government who were directly and explicitly and knowingly involved in carrying out the extermination, the, the murder, that is the attempted murder of, of every German, of every Jewish person on the German, European continent. Um, Probably the principal motive, though, that, 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 that inspired, I think, most of these killers was not even so much an ideology or anti-Semitism um, or the belief that we talked about earlier that the Jews orchestrated this vast Marxist conspiracy that had to be stamped out, because that was the official cover story. I, I would be—you can't really prove this, but I would say that— a lot of the killers were probably just motivated by careerism, because if you were in the Nazi regime, the most one of the most prestigious avenues to advancement uh, and to the most prestigious status within Nazi Germany was membership in the SS, which was considered the elite of the Nazi party and of the regime. Uh, and again, you know, it's 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 not so much you don't want to ask sort of. The question is not, why did these men feel compelled to do something so horrific? It's that they didn't think that what they were doing was at all horrific, because they didn't think that any human life mattered um, for really anything. I mean, the, the regime actually murdered 200,000 Germans with disabilities just to save money for national efficiency. Uh, and the Jews were sort of defined as being something less than human, so completely without value. Um, again, I think that probably the principal motive was just, this is my job, it's good for my career, and there's no reason not to do it, because these, these are just people that I'm killing, and people don't matter. And that is kind of the, 
the most horrifying central truth. So is this a is this a battle for control or what threat did the Jews what threat did the Jews have on the Germans that they would want to exterminate them? Well, again, it's important to to recognize that I think the great majority of the German people were not in favor of murdering the Jews. Indeed, I think in the years before the war, it may well even be that the majority of the German people didn't even particularly want to persecute them. On the other hand, um, it became apparent to, to Germans, I think to every German, after Kristallnacht, um, and the anniversary of that is coming up next week, November 9th. This was uh, in 1938, um, a nationwide riot, uh, which in which 267 synagogues across Germany were burned, and the, right. uh, the the plate glass windows of Jewish-owned shops were all smashed, and that hence the name Kristallnacht means Crystal Night. That's where that term comes from. Um, all these the the rioting was largely carried out by uh, Nazi Party thugs in plain clothes, but everyone knew that it was officially sanctioned, and. The, it seems pretty clear that the German people were, were very dismayed by this, but it was also clear at that point, this is a state-sanctioned activity. Uh, they're living in a repressive dictatorship, um, dissenting with an important policy of the regime is, is quite likely a death sentence. And from that point forward, it, it, it seems, it's, it's, we don't, you know, there's so much about German public opinion that we don't know. But I think it's it's more a question. Apathy may not be the, a fair characterization. It may be more simply that people said to themselves, "This is something over which I have no, you know, I can have no influence." It's very important to Hitler and to his government. Um, and so, at that point, they looked away. So, is apathy really maybe not the term? Maybe fear and intimidation is. Although. In a way, I shouldn't. Perhaps I'm too quick to say that. I think after a certain degree of fear and intimidation, then, then, then the response chronically becomes apathy. Uh, okay. I think once once people decide they can't change anything. The other thing, and and here I'm talking also about, you know, once um, the Jews remaining in Germany began to be deported, so-called deported to the east in December of 1941. Um, to their deaths. And I think it was the best evidence is that it was widely understood in those cities and towns that still had a Jewish population that their Jewish neighbors were going to their deaths. Uh, at that point, the Jews had really been segregated from German society so thoroughly. All friendships had withered. Um, they no longer really knew these uh, people that they had once known, and in some cases had very good relations with. They almost they had already died socially before they died physically. That's uh, an overly long answer, but one can at that point, and during the war years, there there is a sense also of a shockingly callous indifference. So, in response to your question, I'm going a little bit back and forth here, and I'm sorry about that. So, well, what, what does boil down to, what's the takeaway from your book? What do you want people to get out of this? I think um, there are t probably the most, there, there are two takeaways. I think one is, is, is what I emphasized earlier, that, that it really, that the most important thing you want to know, if you want to know why this happened, is mm -hmm. that... Um, 
is that that human life was stripped of all value, that it took a a group of a few factors coming together in time to make that happen. And what you mentioned earlier quite aptly, uh, the cheapening of life in the First World War was an essential part of that. On the other hand, it took about a dozen factors coming together across a long period of historical time to make it possible. If any one of those factors had been missing, it would not have happened. Which leads me to the second takeaway uh, that may be even more important, which is to say that for this to happen in our most advanced society, it wasn't enough for one thing to go wrong or two or three. You needed a dozen things to go wrong. It was a perfect storm of circumstances that was highly improbable, almost impossible, even looking back. And it seems impossible to repeat going forward in an advanced society like ours. And thus, for all its horror, on the one hand, you know, for me personally, it is the most horrifying event in history because human life lost all value. And we must regard, we keep that in mind as a warning because the, the value we place on human life is never to be taken for granted. On the other hand, we should not take the Holocaust as an excuse for pessimism about the human future and for pessimism about the desire of human beings to make moral progress and to become morally better. Because I think that's also something that is very much deeply ingrained in human nature. I think we've made great progress. However, it, it feels like, and in some cases, it appears to be the fruit of this is still raising its ugly head. Uh, out of that, we have uh, questionable value of human life. But that's been kind of showcased over into human rights. And then human rights is divided politically. <laughs> you kind of go, what have we ended up with here? Human rights is divided up politically? I'm, I'm not sure I follow. Well, uh, because I would value human rights different than somebody else in a political persuasion, different political persuasion than I would on political rights. So when you look at war, is there, is there a justification for it on both sides? Well, I think that today, compared to even 30 years ago and much less 80 or 100, we are far more likely to seek to, to question the moral justification of war. Prior to World War II, it was all, the, the very idea that war needed a moral justification was kind of alien to the way most people thought about foreign policy. Um, if you're talking about the ugliness of our politics today and the way that in our country we have grown to dehumanize our political opponents to some degree, I don't know. That's probably taking things – well, that is taking things in a very different discussion yeah. than uh, we were discussing and, and one that we really can't go into. But yeah. um, Well, this is fascinating because I, 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 I want to commend you in your work. This is really interesting. I would say to people, the book – first of all, get a copy. It was called How Could This Happen? And uh, again, uh, Dan McMillan is the author of it. And uh, check it out at the bookstores. Um, your work, would it take you 40 years to come up with this? It, it really was a work of 40 years. It, it is, I think, more than anything else, uh, the purpose of my working life. Uh, wow. And, you know, starting, you know, about, well, once the book was published in 2014, then I pivoted to working on the problem of money in American politics and into how it has robbed all of us uh, on both sides of the aisle of our 
rightful say in how we are governed, the damage it has done to the republic, to government by the people. And that is my central focus today. And I'm, I'm not going to hijack our interview into going into that. No, but <laughs> I would say that uh, I, I hope that people may be interested in that at some point as well. Yeah, but, I'd like uh, to have you back on that one. Hey, thanks for thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Well, Best thank you. Me. Yeah, let me say to our viewers and listeners, check out the book, How Could This Happen? Uh, by Dan uh, McMillan. There's a picture of the cover of the book on the screen. And uh, doctor, perhaps we can get you back on the other subject. I'd like to talk to you about that. Thank you very much, Perry. All right, see you later. Thank you for listening to this week's Focus Today podcast. Remember, you can visit our website to check out all the interviews we did this week on our daily Focus Today TV show at thedove.us. And if you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and share it with your friends.